Lord, I pray, we all pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing to you this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I have been recently reading through a dissertation. Jesus loves his church, his body. Who knows what I've controlled? Yes, a dissertation that was written by uh, Samantha Smith. It was recently accepted by the University of Aberdeen. And Samantha Smith is a dear friend of ours, as well as a former student. So it was a delight to read through her dissertation. And I was surprised when I came across this haunting research statement that she gave where she said, what is the experience of living in a body that has been traumatized by sexual assault, violence, and continuing in the faith? Hmm. Samantha interviewed seven women who had been wounded by abuse, and they often said that they felt like they were disconnected from their bodies because of that event. So she develops what she calls embodied theology, which is faith lived out in the body. She goes on to say, the body is a full part of the true human self. It is part of a person's whole, which is of great importance to God. I think that that's true. I mean, we were all created with a body. When God came to redeem us, he came in the form of a body. And then when we're resurrected, we're going to be resurrected with bodies. So I think it's very true that the body is a very full part of who we are. Dr. Smith goes on to state that there is no getting outside of the body that we indwell. Our very way of being in the world is inextricably connected to our bodies. What happens to the body impacts the way one thinks and the way one feels. And then Scottish theologian by the name of Kristen Boss goes on to say, there is no body-free excarnate, I like that word, there is no excarnate experience of ourselves, the others, and the world around us. My body is my particular being for me. And it is my presence in the world. My body is uniquely mine. And I think that this is true whether you're Arnold Schwarzenegger or whether you're Stephen Hawking. Whether you're Serena Williams or whether you're Johnny Erickson Tata. There's no getting outside of our body. And this theology of the body, this embodiment, I think is fascinating in view of the fact that the scriptures then talk about us, the church, as a body. What an interesting metaphor, since there's no living, no getting outside of the body. And some of us will say, oh yeah, but my body is broken. Or I'm wounded inside of this body. And I think that that's probably true for quite a few of us. So how am I supposed to function in this 
bigger body called the body of Christ. And again, to take off of Dr. Bosch's statement, there is no capital B body-free, excarnate experience of ourselves, of others, and the world around us. When the letter to the Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, probably around A.D. 56, A.D. 57, he writes to a group of house churches. And these are people that he didn't plant, he didn't start the church, and he had never visited the church. And yet he thought it was true everywhere that there is this embodied experience. And he describes it in Corinthians through this imagery that he'll lay out in Romans 12, 1 through 8, where he talks about the basis of responsible living in verses 1 and 2. And then how we should think and then who we are, and finally, how we should live as a body. First of all, he's going to talk about this basis of responsible living that we have. And when we read this, it's a very familiar passage to most of us, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We often think of it individually, but it's not really written to an individual. It's written to a congregation. All the verbs are plural, and so to kind of help you with that, I've kind of put the word PL after every word that's plural in my translation of this passage so you can kind of get a sense that he's speaking to the congregation. And he says this, and I'm going to stand over here so I don't get in the way. Therefore, I appeal to you, plural, brothers, plural, by the mercies, plural, of God to present your, plural, bodies, plural, a living and holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, which is your, plural, reasonable service. And do not be conformed, plural, to this age, but be transformed, plural, by the renewing of the mind so that you, plural, may approve what it is the will of God, the good and well-pleasing and perfect will. Obviously, this is written to a group. It's not written, even though we may read it individually, it's not written for us individually so much as for a group. I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. He doesn't say our minds. He doesn't say our spirits. He says our bodies. I wonder what he means by that. And then he says that we're to do it in a way that is separated from sin or holy. I wonder why he says that. Is there some sense that the community in Rome was not living sacrificially and was actually sinning against one another? We can imagine what that divide might have been that was going on in Rome that was separating them from one another. But I don't think we need to go very far than Romans itself. You know, they were located in the capital of the Roman Empire. In that capital, it was very anti-Jewish. And their problem turns into an ethnic problem. 
Emperor Claudius had issued around A.D. 49 a decree that expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And so even though Paul wrote this letter much later after the edict had been rescinded, I think that what happened during that time had an impact. The church was probably started by Roman believers, Christian Jewish believers, but now the non-Jewish believers were the dominant ones in the community. And Paul talks about this over and over again in the book of Romans. In the chapter just preceding this chapter, in chapter 11, he says, you non-Jewish people were grafted into the promises of Israel. You share in Israel's promises. And if you become unbelieving, you'll be cut off from those promises. And then when you get to the later chapters, 14 and 15, he's talking to these non-Jewish people who see themselves as strong and not needing to follow the traditions of Israel. And they're critical of the Jewish people who were following their traditions and they liken as weaker because they follow these traditions, and these traditions have separated them from the nations around them for hundreds of years. And he says, you need to limit yourselves. Or said otherwise, you need to become sacrificial. We know how this can happen in a community. We can do the same things. Communities become hostile, warring, and ravaged over race, over personalities, over styles of worship, over politics, over social issues, or even expectations of the manifestation of the Spirit. We find ways that we can divide ourselves from one another. And Paul says, no, actually, you need to be those who live sacrificial lives and stop sinning against one another by dividing against one another. And how do you do this? He says, we do this by the renewing of our mind. Now, how do you do that? I mean, we all kind of have this sense that if we think something, it must be true. Like for hundreds of years, people thought that the earth was flat. You know, that's an awkward position now when we look at the other planets in our solar system. But we, they thought that for a long time. That didn't make it true. Or we think today that, <clears throat> some people at least, they used to think that the sun circled the earth, right? And we still have the remnants of this in our language. What a beautiful sunrise. Really? What a beautiful sunset. I know it's a little awkward to say, oh, honey, what a beautiful rotation of the earth on its axis. <laughs> but that's exactly what's happening. That's accurately what's happening. And this false thinking has found its way into the language. And we, I think we have the same kind of thing that happens, not only about the universe and the earth, but the people who dwell on the earth. We tend to have thoughts, and we think our thoughts are accurate about one another or even about ourselves. For instance, who am I? How do you answer that question? Who am I? Am I valuable because of my race, my gender, 
my beauty, my age, my intelligence, my education, my profession, my religion, or because bright and beautiful people like me? Who am I? Or said differently, am I valuable because I'm not like you? All these ways of thinking, I think, exist even today throughout our times in different localities. If you're in Ireland and Scotland, they're still warring between the Protestants and the Catholics. If you're in Canada, they're still fighting about whether you should be speaking in English or in French. At least if you're in Quebec, they're doing that. If you're in India, they're still worrying about whether you're a Brahmin or whether you're one of the untouchables or whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim. If you're in South Africa, they're still feuding over whether you're a white person who maybe speaks Afrikaans or whether you're a black person who is an African and speaks your native language. Or if you're in the United States, we're still worrying over whether you're white or whether you're black, whether you're politically left or politically right. And Paul would say, do not be conformed to this age because it seeps into how we think about ourselves. But be transformed, he would say, by the renewing of your mind. Okay? But how do we do that? Well, he addresses that in the very next section where he talks about how we should think. And he says this, For through the grace that was given to me, I say to all who are among you, again, it's plural, not to think beyond what is necessary to think, but to think soberly, as God measured a measure of faith. He kind of plays on words in the passage. He says, I don't want you to be super-minded, but I want you to be sober-minded. And he says this as someone who is given grace, meaning I'm an apostle to the non-Jewish people where all this rift is going on. And he says, you need to not be super-minded, but sober-minded. Well, how does that happen? I think the key is in that last phrase, as God measured a measure of faith. Now, many would interpret that to mean each of us is given a different measure of faith, and that's how you become sober-minded. But I kind of think that works against the logic of what he's getting at. Because if we have a dispute... I can just say to you, well, I have a greater measure of faith than you have, so you need to follow what I'm saying. See how that works? It doesn't work. That's right. So I think Paul's saying that there is a measure, a standard of faith that we all share in common. He said it this way earlier in Romans chapter 3. He said, where then is boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law, he's speaking to the Jews, of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not of, also of the non-Jews? Yes, of the non-Jews since... I can't read it that far away. <laughs> of the non-Jews since indeed God who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised non-Jews through faith is one. He's alluding to the great Shema. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And all that happens is under his oneness. And all of us are together, are brought together because of our need of him. Our faith in him. So I'm valuable not because of my race or anything like that, what happens is there's a leveling of all of our lives in Christ. There's no more Jew and non-Jew, PhD or no degree, white or black, bright or struggling, strong or weak, politically right or politically left, male or female, Protestant or Catholic, when we come to this table, it levels the playing field. We all come because we need him. And this, I think, is what Paul's getting at when he says, don't be super-minded, but be sober-minded because of the measure of faith that we all have. It's one faith in him. And now he begins to develop this as he discusses who we are with this one faith. And I, I love how he does this because he's going to talk about our natural bodies again in his embodied theology. And then he's going to transport us into this supernatural body that we're all a part of. He says it this way. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, that's the natural body, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. When you sit down at a computer and you're going to create you're thinking about what you're going to create, but your eyes are looking at the screen. Your hands are on the keyboard and you're looking at your hands or sometimes the screen or the mouse that's over there. Your back is holding your body erect. Your legs are keeping your body balanced. And all that happens simultaneously without any thought to it because all of our members are part of our body working together. And he says, so it is with this universal body, this body of Christ. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. When I want to feel or know that God has forgiven me, I come to you to find out if you will forgive me for the wrong I've done. If I want to be close to God, I actually come to 
you as the body of Christ for a relationship. Because you show me, you're the visible manifestation of God on earth. If I want to know more about what God is saying, about who God is, I come to you and you teach me. If I need to find mercy in my life because I've really messed up, I come to you. Just as we experience our body, our life in our body, so it is that God experiences his life through the body. And it's fascinating. He then talks about what we should do or how we should live. I think Paul isn't making this up. He's actually applying this to our lives As he does this, I think he's saying that God has given us gifts. He's given us grace gifts. But these gifts are actually manifestations of who he is in us. They're his character in us. They're his abilities in us. So Paul says, and having grace gifts according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy according to the analogy of faith, whether service and serving, whether the one teaching and teaching, whether the one encouraging in the encouragement, the one giving in sincerity, the one leading in diligence, the one being merciful in cheerfulness. It's interesting, these gifts... He doesn't list any offices in this particular list of gifts. He doesn't talk about an apostle. He doesn't talk about an elder. And he doesn't list any individuals in this list of seven gifts that he gives us. He doesn't talk about a pastor. He doesn't talk about a teacher. Instead, he describes the gifts. He kind of uses verbs to do it. He describes the gifts and how they function and then how they should be used so that you and I can look at the gifts and say, where is God going to use me? Where am I? The first gift he gives is the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is... um, It's a revelation and interpretation of the secrets of God. I would like to know that. Interestingly, interestingly though, he says this is done according to the analogy of faith. This could mean that each person has different levels of faith, But again, that doesn't seem to be where he's going in this passage. And the word he uses here for analogy is a mathematical term. It means um, the ratio or the proportion of one thing to another. And so when he says prophecy by the analogy of faith, he's saying prophecy, and you're getting this gift of the Spirit, but it is to be in ratio to the faith that we all share. As Pastor Bart often says, we are a people who wholly hold to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Where here's a gift of the Spirit of God, but it's to be compared against the Word of God because we're human. 
We might exaggerate something. We might overstate something. Paul says it this way in other passages, like in 1 Corinthians 14. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Or do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything. So in this gift of prophecy, we're to express it according to faith. He then says, whether service in serving. This word for service is really a word that describes something that was done in the household. It would be caring for the household, uh, providing meals in the household. Yes, Jesus took it to describe himself as giving himself for others, but it often had a household sense. And some people just do not mind serving to meet the needs of others. It's a special gift. The thing, though, is that this gift also speaks to all of us in the body. Henry Nouwen, who was a Roman Catholic priest, he taught at Harvard Divinity School. He taught at Yale Divinity School. He went for a year for training to France to an organization called L'Arc to work among what he calls handicapped people, disabled people. He writes about one of his days there in his journal. He says, one of the most important things that the leader is saying to me during this retreat is that L'Arc is built upon the body and not upon the word. This helps to explain my struggle in coming to La Arc. Until now, my whole life has been centered around the word, learning, teaching, reading, writing, speaking. Without the word, my life is unthinkable. A good day is a good day with a good conversation, a good lecture given or heard, a good book read, or a good article written. Most of my joys and pains are connected with words. L'Arc, however, is built not on words, but on the body. The community of L'Arc is a community formed around wounded bodies of handicapped people. Feeding, cleaning, touching, holding. This is what builds the community. Words are secondary. Most handicapped people have few words to speak, and many do not speak at all. It is the language of the body that counts most. I feel a deep resistance to this way. Somehow, I have come to think about eating, drinking, washing, and dressing as so many necessary preconditions for reading, speaking, teaching, or writing. Somehow the pure word was the real thing for me. Time spent with material things was necessary, but needed to be kept to a minimum. But at La Arc, that is where all the attention goes. At La Arc, the body is the place where the word is met. It is in relationship to the wounded body the handicapped person that I must learn to discover God. This is very hard for me. 
I still find a long meal in the middle of the day a waste of time. I still think that I have more important things to do than to set the table, eat slowly, wash the dishes, and set the table again. I think surely we must eat, but the work that comes after is what counts. But Laark cannot endure this mindset. I wonder when and how I will learn to fully live the incarnation. I suppose that only the handicapped people themselves will be able to show me the way. I must trust that God will send me the teachers I need. The serving actually affects the body. The next gift that's described after serving is teaching. And we've all been exposed to teachers who just stirred our hearts. I always think of the two who were on the road to Emmaus. And after Jesus vanished, they said, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? I know that feeling when it happens. I remember being in college and going to the chapel in University Park in Akron, Ohio. I sat way down there on the front row and I would listen to Pastor Burnham Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and then Sunday evening I would drag my trash can in the snow to the curb and I'd get out under the the stars and I'd say, God, this was the best day. I can't believe I have to wait seven more days for Sunday. When I was in seminary, I was in my fourth year, not because I was slow, but because that's how long it took. And in the fourth year, usually you'd kind of heard it all, but I would go to Dr. Alan Ross's class on an exposition of Genesis. He hadn't even written this book yet. And every day I'd leave that class and I'd say, I had no idea this was in the scriptures. And this gift isn't just given to men, it's given to women as well. And we've all experienced it with people like Kathy Brookins or Cheryl Ross or Cindy Hornsby or Lucy. When they speak, they speak powerfully. One of the best teachers I've ever heard is my wife, Lynn. You say, well, how do I know if I have this gift? Well, what's your desire? Try it out. People in the body will let you know. (laughs) I meant that well. (laughs) He says, whether the one encouraging in the encouragement. This word for encouragement, it gets translated a lot of ways. Encourage, uh, to comfort, to uh, exhort. It really is a word, it's parakaleo. There's my Greek word for the day. Kaleo means to call, and para means beside. You call someone beside. We use it like with paramedics. They are medics who are beside doctors. So parakaleo, someone who calls someone aside, and then they encourage us, or they exhort us, or they comfort us. There was a person in a in a book, uh, his name was Polworth, and he came and he heard this pastor whose name was Wingfold, and uh, this pastor was preaching somebody else's sermons. He's a curate, 
in England. He's preaching somebody else's sermons, and so Polworth finally goes and talks to Wingfold about this, kind of exposing him for what he's doing, encouraging him, I think. And he says this to him, Polworth, have you never preached a sermon of your own thinking? I don't mean of your own making, one that came out of the commentaries. I'm told that the commentaries are the minds where some of our most noted preachers go to dig for their first inspirations. But have you offered one that came out of your own heart? From your delight in something you had discovered or from something about which you felt very strongly? No, answered Wingfold. I have nothing. I never have had anything worth giving to another. Polworth. I will come to the point practically. A man who does not feel that he has something in his own soul to tell his people should turn his energy to the providing of such food for them as he finds feeds himself. In other words, if he has nothing new in his own treasure, let him bring something old out of another man's treasure then you do think a man should make up his sermons from the books he reads? Yes, if he can do no better, but then I would have him read much, not with his sermon in his thoughts, but with his people in his heart. Most people have so little time for reading or thinking. The office of preaching is meant, first of all, to wake them up, Next, to make them hungry. Finally, to give them food for that hunger. And the pastor has to take thought for all these things. For if he doesn't feed God's flock, then he is no shepherd. You say, wow. I don't know if I could say that to Pastor Bart. That's why we need the gift of encouragement. Say, well, Dave, that's just fiction. That would never really happen. One person gave this definition of fiction. Fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. We all can't experience everything. We don't have that capacity But sometimes if you can read what someone else has talked about or imagined, you can have experiences that are greater than your own. And they'll inform you. You'll think, oh, I'm the only one who thinks this. I'm the only one who has this impression about life. And then you read and you find out, oh, I'm not the only one. Like if you're you're reading Leo Tolstoy and he starts off Anna Karenina and he uses this line, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. He's on to something. We live in a time when we barely talk to one another. We used to have parents and grandparents and relatives who would speak into our lives and tell us how to exercise the gift of encouragement. Now sometimes we need the great lies that tell the truth about how we live. 
The gifts go on. He talks about the gift of giving. You know how this gift of giving has an impact on the community, at least on your own life. When I was in seminary, we had this little box, a P.O. box, that you would get all your papers back through. You had a number, and every once in a while, a couple times, I opened the box, and there was an envelope, and there was just my box number on it. I opened the envelope, and there was money inside, cash. I didn't know who gave it to me. I mean, I probably did know who gave it to me, but I didn't know who it was. And it just drew me to God. God, thank you for providing for me. And this kind of thing happens here at this church. I've been told once or twice a year, there's a donor who gives to the church, does it through an anonymous body, and no one can trace it back to the donor. And it's a substantial gift that he gives to the church so that we have to say, this comes from God. That's the impact on the body of giving with some kind of focus, sincerity. He says, the one who leads in diligence. This is another generic term. It describes someone who stands before other people. Who stands before. And we all know that these become leaders in the community. And it could be Larry. It could be our trustees. It could be our elders. It could be those who are with the children downstairs. It's those who help you walk through very dark paths because they've already been down that path. They lead because they know what's happening in your life and they tell you, you need to get a power of attorney while you still can. Or you need to go ahead and find a place to put someone in the future when they can no longer care for themselves and you can't care for them either. That's what the leaders do. Or, he says, finally, the one being merciful in cheerfulness. Mercy is this compassion. And the word for cheerfulness is the same word we get our English word hilarity from. That's an odd combination. Because when you're being compassionate with someone, it's because they have trouble. But you know when you need someone to be merciful in your life, how they exercise that gift is as important as what they do. I'd like to share one more lie that tells the truth. This book, Covenant of Water, takes place in the country of India, on the east tip of it. There's a woman, her name is Big Amichi. She really means big mother because she mothers so many people in the story. It's a title of honor. She has a baby named, a daughter named Baby Maul, which really means baby girl. She's older now, but she seems to have developmental problems. And so they take her to the big city to see a doctor, Dr. Rune. And what I love about this passage is Dr. Rune is so merciful as he gives a very difficult diagnosis. I do know what is going on with baby Maul. You do? Big Amichi says, thrilled. Yes, you see, I recognized her once. What? 
what do you mean? You've seen her before? You could say that. He examines baby Maul's hands. I expect she has a swelling, a hernia by her belly button. Am I right? He lifts baby Maul's shirt, and it's as he says, a bulge that big Amici thought nothing of since it never troubled her little girl. Baby Maul giggles. The doctor has her walk for him, put out her tongue. He rests his huge forearms on the desk and leans forward. What baby Maul has is a well-known affliction. It's called cretinism. But the name is not important. It means nothing to big Amici in any case. There's a gland here in the neck, the thyroid. You've seen it swell into a goiter in some people. She has. The gland produces a, a vital substance for the body to grow and the brain to develop. Sometimes at birth, the gland doesn't work. Then children develop like baby maul. The tongue, the broad face, the hoarse voice, the thickened skin. She's a smart child, and she's slow to learn what others her age know. He's listing all the things about her daughter that she has resisted seeing. You can tell all of that by looking at her, Big Amici asks, still a little doubtful. He steps to the bookshelf and without hesitation picks out a volume. He rifles through the pages just as her father could with his Bible, familiar with chapter and verse. He turns the big book around to display a photograph. It's true. Baby Ma resembles this child more than she resembles her blood relatives. Baby Ma puts her broad finger on the page and giggles in recognition. Is there medicine to cure this? He sighs and shakes his head. Yes and no. There's an extract of the thyroid, but it isn't available in India. Even if it were, it would have to be administered from birth. At this point, no amount of that extract will reverse what you see. Big Amici looks at this man whose hair and beard are like spun gold and whose eyes are the color of the ocean. More than the color, it's the kindness in them that is so striking. It only makes the words more painful to her. The door into her daughter's future has been pushed open. The view is crushing she wants to argue. He reads her mind. She'll always be a child. That's what I have to tell you. She'll never grow up, I'm sorry to say. He smiles at baby Maul. But what a happy child. A child of God. A blessed child. I wish I had some other news for you. I wish I did. He says, his face grave, those kind eyes now full of sorrow. Her mother looks on, her wet eyes, 
a hand on her daughter's shoulder. Baby Mauler's her happy self, too absorbed with the doctor and his beard and the instruments on the table to be affected by the discussion. Bless you, Big Amit, she says, her voice choking. She has just thanked this man who gave her this terrible news, habit being so strong. Please understand, this happened before her birth. She was born this way. Nothing you or anyone else did caused it. Understand? This isn't your fault. In Jeremiah, doesn't God say, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth from the womb, I sanctified thee. Dr. Rune is so merciful. And he benefits the body. say, well, Dave, I'm broken. Or the person inside this body is broken. How am I supposed to be part of that body? I understand. I failed first grade because I couldn't read. I mean, I could read, but then after I was sexually abused as a little boy, all of a sudden, I couldn't read anymore. Failing first grade was devastating for me. It gave me the sense for the rest of my life that I was intellectually inadequate, being translated dumb. And then I spent a lifetime, unknowingly, but a lifetime pursuing people in my life that I thought would make me valuable because I thought they were more intelligent than I was. And I left a wake of tears. So I understand what it means to be broken inside of this body. My brother Walt, this is Walter, he's five years older than me, my brother Walt and his wife Polly. My brother Walt was riding one day on his motorcycle and he was going up a hill and there was a driver coming on the other side of the hill, coming up the hill and the driver was left of center when they met at the top of the hill and he knocked my brother off of his motorcycle Walt lost his left leg and the use of his left arm. Someone stopped to help him at the scene. Walt, being the Eagle Scout that he was, told the person, take off my belt and wrap it around my leg as tight as you can, because if you don't, I'm going to die. They airlifted him to a hospital in Columbus, Ohio, And he was in intensive care for days. When I went up to see him, we thought we were going to his funeral. 
After he'd been there a few days, the driver came to see him. Walt was in intensive care. He had tubes down his throat. He couldn't talk. But he heard, someone came to tell him, the driver is here. And Walt wanted to communicate with him. The driver couldn't come into the room. So his wife, Polly, said, well, why don't you write down what you want to say? And so she gave him a pad of paper, and he started to write. But he kept writing letters on top of letters because he couldn't move his hand. So she said, okay, I'll move the piece of paper while you write the letters. And he wrote out the letters. Tell the driver I forgive him. And have the elders tell the driver that Jesus Christ forgives him too. The elders met with that man and he trusted in Jesus Christ. A broken body, but he knew in his brokenness that he had something to share about the forgiveness of God that only he could share in that situation. Twyla Paris said it this way. How beautiful when humble hearts give the fruit of pure lives so that others may live. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. As we come today for the Lord's Supper, we come as the body of Christ. Those who are in the center aisle will come down to the center table, those on the right to the right table, those on the left to the left table. I encourage you to look at each other while you come because you're all, we all are saying the same thing. We are coming to this table because of our need in Christ. Take the elements then to your seats and we'll all partake together. Let's come now.